0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Baptism announcements in church newsletters aren't usually cause for much excitement outside of the baby's family, certainly not a matter for the state Supreme Court. Unless you're a particular Syrian-born man who claims that a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he converted to Christianity, agreed to keep his name private. In actuality, they posted it on the church's website, as they do with all baptisms, making it the first Google result for the man's name. Which is why, when he returned to Syria, he was kidnapped and tortured, and why he later took the church to court. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. It took the man, only referred to as John Doe in the court documents, three days to escape his captors, several months for he and his wife to be able to return to the United States, and multiple surgeries to repair the injuries he'd received. He can never return to Syria, and receives frequent death threats. Doe sued First Presbyterian for $75,000, accusing it of breach of contract, negligence, and outrage, saying that the Church had agreed to keep his baptism quiet. The Church successfully petitioned for the case to be dismissed, reasoning that secular courts don't have jurisdiction over ecclesiastical matters like theology and its customs. Doe appealed to the state Supreme Court, who would rule 5-3 against his case, with Chief Justice Douglas Combs writing, "...the public nature of baptism is an integral part of the Presbyterian Church's understanding of the sacrament." Who would have thought baptisms would have so much starch attached to them? I've attended several in my family. I'm one of six kids, after all. And usually the worst thing that happens is you have to dress up and be quiet. In Christian churches, baptism is a ritual involving water as a symbol of purification that is also one's admission to the faith, and is typically accompanied by giving the initiate their name, particularly in the case of babies, who are the most likely to be baptized. In addition to Baptists, there are Anabaptists, a Christian movement which traces its origins to the Radical Reformation – that kerfuffle with Martin Luther, a list of complaints, and a hammer. Anabaptists believe that baptism is only valid when the candidate wants to be baptized, so they're baptized as adults. Of the four million or so Anabaptists throughout the world, the most numerous sects include the Mennonites. German Baptists, and the Amish. Bonus fact. Those who know of Mennonites as being less strict than the Amish may think that the Amish were the original group. But in fact, the Mennonites came first, and the Amish split from them, because the Founders believed that people should be more separated from wider society. And while I have you, please stop believing reality TV shows about the Amish, or any reality TV for that matter. There are a lot of religions out there with multiple sacraments apiece, so we're going to define baptism on the broad side, as an act or experience that makes a person an official part of a community. As in Christianity, many infant baptism practices include the act of officially naming the child. When a baby is born into a Buddhist family in parts of Asia, monks are invited to the house to bless the baby and chant from holy texts. Based on the exact time and date of the birth, an astrologer will draw a horoscope and inform the parents about the initial that the name should begin with. The parents will then choose a name accordingly. Within one month of birth, the baby is brought to a temple for blessing and placed in front of the statue of Buddha. Offerings of flowers, candles, and incense are made, and the monk blesses the child, announcing his or her name. In some forms of Buddhism, Sacred threads are tied around the baby's wrists to welcome Quan, the spirit that looks after babies. Another bonus fact, all Chinese children of one generation share the same middle name, traditionally speaking, and there is a cycle of 24 generation names, so it can take several hundred years to go through the cycle. The native peoples of the Arctic lands of northern Canada, Alaska, and into Greenland hold a naming ceremony called Atik, which means both name and spirit. The baby is given the name of a family member who has died, usually a beloved older relative like a grandparent. The family chooses the relative based on such things as the baby having a similar birthmark to that person or the mother dreaming about them during the pregnancy. The Inuit believe in reincarnation and that the baby receives the relative's spirit as well as his or her name. It's also believed that a baby who cries incessantly when born will stop crying once the right atik has been given. There's a tradition in some Muslim cultures called akiha, and I'm fairly certain I pronounced that entirely wrong. As soon as a Muslim baby is born, their father or grandfather whispers a prayer in their ear, so that is the first thing he or she hears. Names are usually taken from the Quran. Within seven days, the akika is held, in order to thank Allah. Prayers are said, and the baby's head is shaved. The hair is weighed, and the family then gives at least that same weight in gold or silver to charity. The baby is then given a taste of honey as a symbol of the sweetness of prayer. Though this tradition probably goes back more than 2,000 years, I do want to mention that babies less than one year old should not eat honey as it may contain botulism spores that their little bodies can't fight off yet. Soon after the birth of a Sikh baby, a respected elder gives the baby a few drops of honey and water while reciting a hymn. As soon as the mother and baby are well enough, a naming ceremony is held at the temple. There is a reading from the holy book where the passage is selected by opening the book at random. The first letter of the word at the beginning of this passage will be the first letter of the baby's name, which is then chosen by the parents. All boys are given the same second name, singh meaning lion, and for all girls, its kar meaning princess. Family and friends are then given kara prashad, a sweet treat made of flour, sugar, and clarified butter, followed by a communal meal. Among the Akamba people of Tanzania, a child is named on the third day after birth. Before the naming ceremony, the newborn is regarded as a spirit and not a complete human being. A goat will be slaughtered in appreciation of the ancestral spirits for the gift of the child and the fertility of the parents. The announcement of the newborn baby's name will be made by his or her grandmother or an elderly woman relative and is the climax of the ceremony. With over two billion Christians in the world, I'm going to risk assuming that my gentle listener has at least a passing familiarity with their baptismal practices. The exact ritual varies between denominations, usually in the amount of water that's used. This can be a sprinkling of water or a handful poured over the baby's head. Maybe the initiate is standing in water. Or you can go Greek Orthodox style, which apparently involves dunking a newborn in the baptismal font with bizarre vigor. I'm not exaggerating or poking fun. Google baptism video backlash. I'll wait. For those of you who may be driving while you listen to podcasts, the video in question shows a priest, identified in captions as Greek Orthodox but disavowed by some Greek archdiocese, repeatedly dunking a baby in the baptismal font with a range of motion that went from mid-thigh to over his head. The baby was fine, albeit upset, but then it's a baby. The congregation didn't react as though anything unusual was happening, though some young girls can be seen trying to escape the sea-world levels of splashing. The video went viral, but all of the complaints it's generated seemed to come from that wealth of unqualified opinions and unchecked vitriol known as the comment section and not from anyone who was actually there. There's a similarly surprising video from the former Soviet nation of Georgia, where the baby is rapidly dipped headfirst, first, back and forth, all in the span of about five seconds. That baby looks more startled and confused than anything. Different strokes, I guess. That's not to say that bad things don't happen at baptisms. In 2013, a Seattle-area baptism turned into a brawl, Adult beverages had been on offer, and local law enforcement had to be called in. The incident ended with five police officers assaulted, two officers injured, and two people arrested and jailed. In 2014, a Florida man was fatally shot at a baptism party when he tried to break up a fight over food between the family and some uninvited guests. That same year, a baptism was held on a beach in California when seven-foot or two-meter waves swept three people away. Two were able to swim back to shore, but one was never found. A similar tragedy occurred earlier this year in South Africa, where rip currents drowned three men. You don't have to be in the ocean for a baptism to turn fatal. In 2005, Rev. Kyle Lake was conducting a baptism at the University Baptist Church, and was electrocuted when he reached out to adjust a microphone while standing in the water. Fortunately, the woman who was being baptized hadn't gotten into the water yet, so she wasn't injured. The Reverend's widow later received a settlement from the electrical contractor on the basis that the company had negligently designed, assembled, and installed the heaters that resulted in the electrocution. And then baptisms can get plain weird In 2016, a Florida man claimed that the Voice of God woke him in the middle of the night and commanded him to baptize his son. So the man dragged his 11-year-old son out of bed, took him to a neighbor's house, and dunked him repeatedly in their pool, which was green and full of leaves and bugs. The boy actually got an ear and eye infection from the water, and the father was charged with child abuse. Bonus Fact The reason we hear so many wacky and wild, a Florida man news stories is that arrest records in Florida are public, making them more likely to wind up in the news. In 2015, a high school in Georgia got in trouble for allowing a mass baptism of 18 football players and a coach on the school's football field, which violates not only school policies, but was a major infringement of the separation of church and state. No word on how they did that season. In 2011, a 64-year-old priest arrived at a Sacramento church an hour late and falling down drunk to baptize 15 children. Church members carried the wayward priest to the rectory, and he was later suspended indefinitely. A common ritual around the world to indicate that a child is now part of their parents' religion or community is circumcision. We are not going to debate the merits of circumcision today. Don't at me, as the kids say. The mind goes immediately to baby Jewish boys having their foreskins removed eight days after they're born in a ceremony called a bris. But the chosen people are by no means the only people. Rates of male circumcision vary from as low as virtually 0% in Honduras to 20% in the United Kingdom, 45% in South Africa, around 80% in the United States, and over 90% in many Muslim-majority countries. Traditional circumcisions are in no way limited to one infant either. Take, for instance, the practice of Mbalu, of the Bombasaba and Bakusu people of Uganda. Held during the rainy season every other year, Mbalu is a ceremony of mass circumcision, wherein hundreds of young men, from 16 years old to their mid-20s, will be initiated through circumcision. During circumcision, the candidates are expected to stand firm as a sign of courage and boldness. The young men go to their relatives, declaring their intentions to be circumcised, and are later gathered at Mutatu Village, wearing traditional garments made from plantain fronds and animal hides. Here, elders lead them to be circumcised while dancing and singing cultural songs, accompanied by cheering friends marching and dancing through the streets. Crying during the process would mean cowardice, thus it is forbidden, says traditionalist John Musira. The actual circumcision part lasts about an hour as the surgeon goes through the initiates, making three cuts to remove the foreskin from each. A whistle is blown when the last circumcision is complete. The young men are then led to a quiet place and wrapped in cloth until the bleeding stops. Then they go to their father's home, and are hand-fed for three days, before being ritually washed and permitted to eat with their own hands, marking the end of the ritual. Unlike in other areas of Africa, where circumcision is carried out in private with a few people present, this is considered a public function, and has actually become a legitimate tourist attraction.
1: Let mysteries at midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist?
0: Back to Jewish infant circumcision, and a particular rare ancient ritual called mitzitzapeh, which requires that the blood from the incision be removed by the moil, the rabbi performing the bris by mouth. Normally, nothing much comes of this, which is why it's not usually known outside of the communities that practice it, unless the moil has herpes. In New York City, since 2006, 22% of all male neonatal herpes cases were linked to ritual circumcision. Herpes is a nuisance infection to adults, but can be very serious in newborns, quickly spreading throughout the body. Of 22 cases of moil-spread herpes since 2000, two of the infants suffered permanent brain damage and two died. However, leaders of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities that practice Mitzitz of have opposed any restrictions on the centuries-old ritual as an infringement of their religious freedom. In a bid to restrict the risky procedure, the Bloomberg administration required parents to sign a consent form. But Mayor de Blasio and the City Board of Health under him scrapped the requirement in 2015. As part of a compromise, the health department distributed pamphlets to doctors, hospitals, and parents warning that some babies can get herpes, which can even lead to death, following mitzitzebepay. Of health officials worry that parents aren't seeing the brochures, though, due in no small part to the insular nature of some ultra-Orthodox communities. Though the consent forms were done away with, rabbinical leaders are now required by city law to assist the health department in identifying which moyle performed a particular bris and to ask him to be tested for the herpes virus. If the moyle tests positive, the city will use DNA testing on the virus itself to determine if the moyle was the one who passed on the virus or if the baby got it some other way. If the moyle is found to be the culprit, the city's health department is supposed to ban him for life from performing mitzitsibapé A city regulation calls for fines ranging from $200 to $2,000 for moils who defy the ban more than once. If you're thinking to yourself, that nasty rabbi, how did he even get herpes? Check out the November 21st episode of the Sawbones podcast. The vast majority of people carry some form of the herpes simplex virus, with most of us never even knowing. The story also reminded me of an episode of Dirty Jobs where host Mike Rowe went to a sheep farm. I expected to be blasé over the whole thing since I was raising goats at the time, so what new information could they really impart? It seemed like I would be right until they got around to castrating the lambs. This was done in what I can only imagine is an ancient technique, with one's teeth. Some groups baptize babies, some baptize adults, Some baptize the dead, their own and other people's. The Mormons, or to give them their full name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, have practiced baptism of the dead since 1840. Posthumous or proxy baptisms are performed at the church's 159 temples. Members of the same gender as the dead person, usually young people, are escorted to a decorative baptismal font resting on a statue of 12 oxen. An adult or older teen male reads a short prayer, and the church member is then immersed in water. The baptism is recorded in a database. Mormons believe that vicarious baptism gives the deceased, who exists in the afterlife as a conscious spirit, a final chance to join the Mormon fold and thus gain access to the celestial kingdom. It's only supposed to be performed for one's own family. Mormons are encouraged to baptize at least four generations of forebearers to seal the family together in the afterlife. So the LDS Church has built one of the world's most extensive genealogical libraries in Salt Lake City, with 700 employees and more than 2 billion names. The LDS Church is also the only major religion that currently baptizes the dead, and that has contributed to some bad PR in the past few decades particularly when they baptize Jewish Holocaust victims and random celebrities. LDS leaders emphasize that the spirits of the dead must accept the baptism, and that Mormons are instructed to only baptize family members, particularly after Jewish genealogists discovered in the 1990s that 380,000 Holocaust survivors had been vicariously baptized. In response, the Church imposed safeguards and spent half a million dollars removing Jewish names from the baptismal registries. But at the same time, the Church insists that it cannot control quote, pranksters or careless persons who submit Jewish names or famous people, such as former President Obama's late mother. The Church considers proxy baptism too important to do without. With deepest respect to our Jewish friends, the Church cannot abandon fundamental aspects of its religious doctrine and practice, the Church writes on its website and it should not be asked to do so. Ryan Cragen, an associate professor of sociology who studies Mormonism at the University of Tampa, said Mormons are striving to baptize everyone who's ever lived to help get non-Mormons out of spirit prison in the afterlife. One reason Holocaust victims are such a common target is that their names are easy to find in government records, which creates an efficient way to baptize more people more quickly. The baptisms of public figures are likely based on two factors, according to Cragen. One, people naturally think about celebrities more often because they see them or hear about them constantly. And two, Mormons are similar to other social groups in that they like to claim famous people as their own. Helen Radke, who left the LDS church in the 70s and was later excommunicated for publicly criticizing it, had to get a login from a still-Mormon friend to access the part of the database that shows the baptisms. She then dedicated countless hours to researching proxy baptisms because she believed people's religious preferences should be respected even after they're dead. Printouts and screenshots of Radke's research show that in the past five years, proxy baptisms have been performed on at least 20 Holocaust victims, as well as Humphrey Bogart, Marilyn Monroe, Crocodile Hunter Steve Irwin, Elvis Presley, the mother of Queen Elizabeth, Princess Diana, Pope John Paul II, Joan of Arc, Gandhi, the grandparents of Carrie Fisher, Steven Spielberg, and Joe Biden, and the parents of Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal. Radke also uncovered attempts to baptize people who were still alive or recently dead, such as O.J. Simpson, Charles Manson, and mass shooters Stephen Paddock and Devin Patrick Kelly. When Radke shared her findings with the Associated Press, the LDS acknowledged that the ceremonies violated its policy and said they would be invalidated, while also noting it's created safeguards in recent years to improve compliance. The posthumous baptizing of Holocaust victims reopens Jewish wounds from being forced in the past to convert to Christianity or face death, Jewish genealogist Gary Modikoff says. The more Radke digs, the more she uncovers. It's not like a chance circumstance." After discussions with Modikov and other Jewish leaders in 1995, the LDS Church barred baptisms of Holocaust victims except in specific cases where direct ancestry could be proven, as well as barring proxy baptisms of celebrities. There are the rules, and then there is what people actually do. Controversies have erupted in the decades plus since, when new proxy baptisms were found listed in the church's genealogical database, including Radke's 2012 discovery of one performed on Anne Frank. Add to that the nine proxy baptisms she received between 1989 and 1999. Oh, and someone in the LDS did one for Adolf Hitler, too. The church apologized in 2012, sent a letter to members reiterating its guidelines, and announced the creation of a firewall aimed at preventing the inappropriate use of proxy baptism. In recent years, it's implemented additional safeguards, including adding four full-time staffers who watch the database and block baptisms on restricted names, including a list of Holocaust victims sent each month by a Jewish human rights organization in Los Angeles. Rabbi Gary Greenbaum, the former National Director of Interreligious Affairs at the American Jewish Committee, said he's seen firsthand that the Church takes seriously preventing Holocaust baptisms, and said leaders are acting in good faith to honor the agreement. Greenbaum was brought on by the Church to help remedy the issue and receives monthly reports from the database team about potential Holocaust baptism attempts. He estimated that they stop 5 to 12 inappropriate attempts each month. An attempt was made last year to baptize Simon Wiesenthal himself, Rabbi Marvin Heyer, founder and dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, said he plans to send a letter to Mormon officials asking that Wiesenthal's name be removed again. They may mean well, but it's insulting to Jews, and it would be insulting to Mr. Wiesenthal, Heyer said. He lived a life of good deeds, and he doesn't need any assistance getting into heaven. An LDS spokesman countered that such names have to stay in the database so officials can monitor them for unauthorized baptisms. Bonus fact, the 16 million or so members of the LDS Church aren't Mormons anymore, at least according to a new style guide issued by the Church. It also wants people to stop using LDS as an abbreviation and to use the Church's full name. When a shortened reference is needed, they should use the Church or Church of Jesus Christ. Similar and yet distinctly different from Mormon posthumous baptism is the pink mass of the Satanic Temple. I can almost promise you it's not what you think. Well, maybe a little. The Satanic Temple is an atheistic organization founded in 2014 that prizes personal autonomy using Satan as a symbol for rebellion rather than a figure to actually be worshipped, and is not to be confused with Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. The Satanic Temple is the organization that made the Satanic Children's Big Book of Activities available to school kids in Florida after a Christian group was granted permission to hand out pamphlets and Bibles. Some of the Satanic Temple's central tenets include One should strive to act with compassion and empathy toward all creatures in accordance with reason. One's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. And Beliefs should conform to our best scientific understanding of the world. In July 2013, members of the Satanic Temple performed a Pink Mass over the grave of Westboro Baptist Church founder Fred Phelps Jr.'s mother, Catherine Johnston. The Pink Mass is a Satanic ritual performed after death that turns the deceased gay. The Satanic Temple turned the mother of the Westboro Baptist Church founder posthumously gay. That's not how that works exactly, but I like the way they think. There were actually two rituals performed over her headstone, one featuring two male temple members kissing, and the other with two female members. Both rituals included readings, lighting of candles, and a certain amount of pomp and ceremony. The idea came about, after the Westboro Baptist Church had threatened to protest the funerals of victims of the Boston Marathon bombing. The Satanic Temple's website compared the Pink Mass to the Mormon practice of baptizing the dead, only much gayer. Upon completion of the Pink Mass ceremony, Catherine Johnston is now gay in the afterlife, notes the Satanic Temple website, which had the cheeky URL of www.westborough-baptist.com, which sadly is no longer up. Fred Phelps is obligated to believe that his mother is now gay, and if beliefs are inviolable rights, nobody has the right to challenge our right to believe that Fred Phelps believes that his mother is now gay. Satanic Temple spokesperson Lucian Greaves, who performed the ceremony, said, We intend to perform the Pink Mass for both Fred Phelps's father and the great aunt that raised him after his mother's death, but only in reply to future pickets. The pink mass could be used to protest other anti gay hysterics, but it is particularly appropriate when applied to Westboro. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But I'll leave you with one more aspect to the pink mass story. The owner of the cemetery told local news that he planned to pursue charges against the satanic temple. The police of Lauderdale County, Mississippi, issued a statement that they were prepared to charge the satanic temple with malicious mischief, trespassing, and indecent exposure, since at one point during the ceremony, Greaves put his schwanz on the headstone, which even I will admit might have been a little excessive. Police have warned Greaves that they will arrest him personally if he returns to the jurisdiction. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And again, and I know I keep saying this, Thanks for putting up with the vocal issues. Asthma is not to be messed with. Seriously.
1: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires.
0: every night.